Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray. And if you're a multifamily investor, whether you're active, passive, you're working in the industry, or just a little bit curious, well, you are in the exact spot are supposed to be. Because every single week on The Gray Report, we are diving deep into the research articles and new data that comes out revolving the multifamily industry, real estate, and the economy. We've got a really special guest today. It's not just Matt and I kind of digging into these reports. We're kind of going straight to the source. We've got real pages, Carl Whittaker here to talk about, you know, not only what we're seeing in the multifamily market, but how RealPage looks at this data, how they do this analysis, and just learning more a little bit about Carl. And again, looking forward to seeing what the market in 2023 and beyond is going to look like. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, welcome back to The Gray Report. We have Carl Whitaker with us. Carl, how are you doing today? Um, it's great to have you on The Gray Report. Yeah, likewise, doing good. Thanks for uh, thanks for asking and thanks for having us. Hope y'all's 2023 is off to a good start. Um, but things are good. It's uh, it's it's good to be able to join y'all. I've seen seen and followed y'all for a while now through your newsletter and on LinkedIn. So it's it's always good to cross paths with industry colleagues that are doing some similar stuff in some regards. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a it's a small world. You know, real estate is real estate's everywhere. Everywhere you go in the world, there's real estate. But you know, it's also a not only an international market; it's an international market. It's it's so local as well. Um, but in the multifamily space, and then the multifamily, you know, housing and uh, an analysis and research space, it's a relatively you know small small club. And so you're you're a member of that that elite club that again that we follow all the time as well. And and you and your colleague uh, Jay Parsons over at RealPage. Um, so this is um, this is a real treat. So just kind of before we get into some of the questions, Carl, can you just give us a little bit of background, um, you know, personally on kind of um, kind of where you came from, how you got this position at RealPage, putting out this great content, um, and then yeah, a little bit about RealPage and what you all do. Yeah, for sure. I'll start with RealPage, and then I'll uh, dive into a little bit of background about myself. So. RealPage is a software as a service company, really touches on all facets of multifamily, whether investment or property management, um, lots of different products that support the needs of multifamily owners, operators, investors, et cetera. Um, specifically, the part of the company that I work in is our data and analytics division, which, as you would expect, is a natural marriage for the, the type of work that our team is doing, which is a lot of economic commentary, you know, how is the economic backdrop influence in multifamily demand today? Uh, what is rent growth occupancy? What does new construction look like, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what a lot of our team does is involved in those types of conversations. Um, and keep me honest from going on too long here, but just for a little bit of background about myself, yeah. um, came into real estate, um, kind of by proxy of my under, or my, I'm sorry, my graduate degree, which is in geography. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think geography, you're memorizing maps and, you know, tell me what the capital of Nepal is off the top of your head. Uh, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot about understanding local dynamics in a place and what separates that place, the, uh, the idiosyncrasies of it, which pretty naturally lends itself to real estate research. And uh, immediately out of finishing up my, my degree, I got a job as, at a um, boutique economic consulting firm here in Dallas and worked there for a little bit. We happened to be subscribers at the time to RealPage and then just kind of worked my way through the uh, uh, 
through the division and through different ranks and now um, oversee our team of economists and analysts with uh, my colleague and uh, my direct uh, boss, who is Jay Parsons, who you've probably come across as well on LinkedIn and Twitter and et cetera. Yeah, you guys put out some great commentary, not not just on your the actual reports um, that you all are putting out, but also pretty some consistent uh, translating those to a little bit more kind of bite size on your LinkedIn posts. And I know they both you and Jay, you guys get a lot of traffic and a lot of comments and um, I think are really kind of um, fueling some really good conversations. Um, about housing studies in the multifamily market, because I, I feel, and I've got a couple of questions just on, on your on your background, but I think it's really interesting. But um, I feel like everyone has, that's a um, real estate investor has needed to become a little bit of an economist as well as a really kind of a a specifically kind of a having a background in housing studies and trying to you know forecast trends because in the last decade or really since the great financial crisis it's been relatively linear growth especially the last kind of five or six years relatively stable um you know the fundamentals were you know pretty solid um it was not incredibly volatile but then you know the pandemic happened and you know we just the book went out the window we had to kind of figure it all out from from a complete macro sense of the economy shutting off what does that mean for housing and then the just the dislocations of you know lower interest rate incredible amount of how of of demand for housing of all kinds to then this last year in 2020 when we just had the e-break pulled on the the economy um so it's really so we're all trying to kind of figure this out and you guys are really leading this conversation so I'm curious. So you're getting a, a master, a postgraduate degree um, in uh, geography studies. Did you think at that point um, real estate was kind of the natural place to go, or um, I guess when did kind of real estate kind of enter into your mind, and when was that part of the, I guess the, the plan and direction? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, th I think my path into real estate, or specifically apartments, was a lot like a lot of other folks, where you don't necessarily plan on heading there, but a natural path kind of opens, and you realize, hey, this is this is a really important um, important part of the uh, the economy at large. And um, I talked to a developer. I'm sorry, not a developer, a um, operator, a couple months ago, and they brought up a great point. They said that they think one of the biggest challenges in the industry right now is educating folks that are in their early 20s coming out of college whatever the case may be that apartments touches a huge part of the population and none of us really plan on that path upon graduation yeah. or you know if we decide not to go to college you don't realize that there's actually a very viable career to be made in apartments and it serves a very specific very important niche of or niche and need uh, within the population and that is providing housing and providing yeah. housing that isn't single family so i thought that was fascinating but uh, i guess more directly to your question my initial goal was to get go to grad school get a phd grad school took the wind out of those sales pretty quick so that's been put on the back burner to say the least if ever i'm going to revisit yeah. that but um you know i think some of it too just being here in the north texas area just so much growth it just there's so many companies here that offer yeah. really promising career paths that i think it just kind of naturally unfolded that way and um you know things uh things have just kind of worked out for the better by following that path uh, even if not by direct design you know it's an interesting point there really isn't a direct kind of path into the multifamily industry i mean i guess you could go you know general business studies you know you there are some colleges that i know that have kind of property management um, degrees or paths, which is 
um, you know, a, a, a niche within multifamily, you know, that that's kind of one path that you could take, but there's really no, yeah, there's really no direct path. There's no, um, you know, you have multifamily real estate uh, uh, undergrad degrees that that's for sure. And then, but it is such a big part of our economy. I mean, real estate as a whole, I mean, when we're looking at um, just, just the weight of um, housing uh, and CPI, I mean, it's basically a third that takes up CPI and to think that yeah, we don't really have this direct pipeline of talent. It's kind of picking apart from different paths. I mean, I, I did not, I, I was a music, uh, music background, music major oh, uh, from, my under, from, from my undergrad. And so I, I made it to private equity, real estate and being an entrepreneur um, in a very um, indirect path as well. And then I find similar stories of people that are maybe doing something somewhat related. And then they kind of, I don't know, you know, light bulb went off at some moment, whether it's you're looking around, you're seeing these apartment buildings and you're like, who owns that? And how does that all work? Or then in Dallas, which is, has such an exciting story right now in the past several years of just incredible explosive job growth and all the development that goes along with that. And you can just see the, um, the path of development and path of progress, you know, just as Dallas keeps getting built out, you know, really in all directions, but especially um, going north, it's pretty, pretty exciting to see. Um, so I want to just hit you with a question, and this is going to be a little bit kind of broad, and then we can kind of dig into it, but it's it's a little bit the elephant in the room. And so, you know, we're seeing reports of just, you know, in, uh, anemic traffic, I mean, apartment demand for the last especially this last quarter, but really kind of the second half of 22 being kind of the worst since, you know, going back to 2009. Um, rent growth has slowed down dramatically, you know, even negative month over month. Um, we're seeing reports of redemptions from all these non-traded uh, public REITs, you know, investors getting very nervous. Also stories of some major portfolios, you know, going into default, interest rates have risen, they have low occupancy or low demand. You know, are we seeing the beginning of a, you know, an actual potential market crash, you know, seeing some of those cracks, or is this, we're witnessing a period of transition after an incredible amount of volatility, and we're trying to get into a new economy, and, you know, there's just going to be some eggs that are broken to make this new omelet of economy that we're making, and it's not going to look pretty, but some things are going to get, somebody's going to get hurt as that water kind of recedes and, you know, see who's swimming naked. Yeah, I love that analogy on the 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 cracking of eggs and making an omelet. I think what's happened is, um, you know, you've seen over the past two, three, four years, it's been pretty easy to look like a genius because the rising tide of demand has really just made everything pretty much a surefire bet. Now, you're starting to see things slow down and you're starting to see some of the cream rising to the top. But conversely, you're starting to see where maybe some of those cracks are emerging. And I like that you led off there with the um, absorption or the demand angle, because for some of our viewers that maybe um, haven't been keeping up with the data, 2022 was the first time we've recorded negative net absorption in the apartment industry yeah. since 2009. And anything, anytime you're comparing a real estate trend to 2008, 2009, not exactly the best starting no. point, but uh, what's really interesting, and I'm sure we'll get into some of this through our discussion, but what's really interesting is when you start peeling back some of the layers that makes the 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 seven layer demand cake, if you will, I think you'll see that there's actually some stronger uh, underlying fundamentals and not some of those big structural cracks that you had in 08, 09 uh, that really made that a challenging period. So I think to summarize there, I think what you're going to see is that some markets, sub-markets, portfolios, whatever the 
scope of analysis you're looking at, you're going to see some additional bifurcation over the next 12 to 24 months that wasn't the case in 2020, 2021, where, uh, you know, outside of some very obvious examples where 2020 really threw a wrench in the works, you had most markets on this fast, rapid growth trajectory, uh, you know, and to your point, even through the 2010s before that, it was really hard to find a market or a submarket that was really struggling in the grand scheme of things. I think now you're going to see, uh, you know, maybe some of those higher leveraged portfolios, maybe some of those higher risk portfolios start to separate from the pack a little bit. But again, conversely, you're going to see some of that cream rise to the top. Yeah. And it's been interesting, you know, just from a broad brushing, the Sunbelt has been, you know, such a strong performer and the, the migration story in the Sunbelt is very very strong not going away anytime soon but something that i i've heard you talk about recently is kind of that bifurcation in um, the sun belt in amongst other markets of taking markets you know like a a, a phoenix or phoenix or las vegas that you know I mean, phoenix has just been you know just on a tear the last couple of years with incredible amount of rent growth i mean the prices the cap rates that some deals are trading for in phoenix in 2021 were you know absolutely um, they, they were bonkers. I mean, great for the developers and, and the sellers, but now we're, we've seen that, that boom and now we're seeing a bust in some markets, but then there's other markets like, you know, in South Florida, um, or, you know, in, in maybe in Austin that are still you know, performing, you know, pretty well, or, or in Dallas that are still performing pretty well and seem to be much more, um, stable. Do you see that trend um, continuing and, and seeing which markets just have the legs under them and which have maybe just grown a little bit too quickly, too fast? Yeah, that's a really, it, it'll be interesting. I wish I had the, the real crystal ball uh, yeah. to see what that looks like. It'll be interesting to revisit this conversation, say three years from now and compare our notes. But um, I think what you're seeing, and, and actually funny enough, we're put, putting together an analysis right now. Hopefully we'll be ready to share it in the next month or so. But basically looking at 20-year market volatility, and you look at the likes of a Vegas and a Phoenix, some of those markets that were first out of the gate over the past year or so, or past two or three years, rather, um, a lot of those markets are now some of the markets that are moderating the most quickly, really fitting that boom-bust boom profile. And I think you're seeing a lot of these markets, that's just kind of the way they tend to behave. You know, you you get really big growth periods in the growth period, but when things start to get kind of kind of tough, the sledding starts to to get tougher. Those markets really start to struggle. And for those types of metros, I've always for any baseball fans on today's discussion, I've always used the analogy of those are kind of your number four, number five lineup hitters that may hit forty home runs in a year, but they may bat two hundred because they're striking out a lot too. And I think you're ex yep. seeing exactly that. Now on the other side. You have a lot of these markets that fit that middle tranche, and I think that's where the Sunbelt story comes into play. You look at the Dallases, the Atlantas, the Raleigh-Durhams, Nashvilles of the world. Uh, while they do have a lot of construction today, and maybe that informs maybe a little bit more of an unknown 12 to 24-month lookout, those markets tend to kind of move around the mean uh, of the nation at large, and a lot less so than the fast growth in those uh, desert southwest markets. And to a lesser degree, some of the Florida markets, which here as of late have still remarkably kept a lot of momentum, which is candidly speaking, been a little bit surprising to me how well they've held up relative to the desert Southwest. But nevertheless, I think what you're seeing is that that volatile, that volatility um, that, you know, was present 10 years ago, in some ways that's still true today. 
And that's what's been interesting in this post-2020 period is you could take some axioms that held true through the previous two cycles and apply them today and they still fit perfectly. You could take some other axioms, apply them today and say, holy cow, why did we ever think that? But that's yeah. just how the nature of real estate it moves and evolves and what makes a lot of our type of work interesting that we get to research these trends and what informs some of that change over time. Yeah, it's fascinating to kind of study just the evolution of markets and cities and just to see yes, just see that maturity um, or, or relative immaturity. I mean, Phoenix specifically, um, it's market we're not invested in, but it, it's a such an interesting market that we, we've followed very closely. And, you know, we were wondering if you know, Phoenix had kind of crossed that threshold of, you know, maybe maturing out of its boom and bust nature and just being a little bit more stable, kind of... Uh, acting more like a Charlotte or, you know, a Dallas, just because of the amount of population growth that's going into that Phoenix market, but it still seems like they're not there just yet. So. Right. Yeah. Sometimes zebras don't change their stripes. It's Phoenix yeah. is in better shape today than it was 10, 15 years ago. Cause as you point out, stronger population growth, more economic diversification. I think yeah. that's the real key. So I don't think Phoenix is as nearly worse a shape as it was mm -hmm. 15 years ago. But again, whenever you had rent growth of 30% at one point in 2021, I think expectedly you expect that rubber band that if it gets pulled far enough forward, when it lets go, it's going to sting. Yeah. And I think that's what I think is so important to keep in mind um, for investors or people who are just watching the market is that, you know, um, economics and, you know, I almost think physics at some time actually you know, do exist. And these like laws of nature or, you know, economics, uh, you know, whether it's soft science or not, you know, actually are starting to come into play in that you, know, you do revert to the mean at some point. Now, the mean can change. But to ha see, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent rent growth in some markets and not to see any type of correction, I think, would be relatively improbable. Um, so this really seems as though that you know, something like this, some slowdown um, is inevitable and, um, you know, probably healthy over the long term because, you know, rents cannot things in general just cannot keep growing in a, up in a straight line parabolically forever. So. Yeah, I love that. I love the comment on healthy too, because I think that's you know I think that's also what we're seeing with construction today. A lot of investors and operators, rightfully so, are kind of bookmarking today's construction as, hey, this is concerning. And I think in some very very localized areas, you know, I mean neighborhoods and street corners, that is true. You know, you look at a downtown Nashville, which that area has more construction today than a units exist, you know, you've got literally 100% inventory growth. That's incredible. Near term, obviously that's concerning, but over the long haul, the nation at large needs this type of housing. And I think today we're starting to build housing specifically of the multifamily variety that was never built to the way it should yeah. have been 1990 to 2010, just kind of using ballpark estimates yeah. here. Um, so we're really kind of backfilling what should have been built 20, 30 years ago. And now it, it may not happen today, but now that's going to start fixing some of the, or at least alleviating, I should say, some of the longer term affordability and availability crises that we see. Um, you know, today's A becomes tomorrow's class B housing. Yep. And I think we'll see that start to play out over a long period, but you got to start somewhere.
Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I think we're starting to see that in some markets where at least the you know the class A of a couple of years ago is starting to become the class B. Those kind of um, mid two thousands, you know, even twenty ten construction properties that you know a couple, up until a couple of years ago you'd consider an A class, but they're really kind of solid B, especially to the type of product that's being delivered today. In terms of um, the the pipeline that's coming online, that's being built. You know, we had a, a incredibly robust pipeline 422 we we missed a lot of those deliveries you know there was the pipeline was much larger than ended up getting built um we still have a robust pipeline or it seems like for 2023 you know i guess first you know which are some of those markets that have an incredible amount of inventory relative to the existing stock that are coming online um they are a little bit concerned of a market like Dallas, which I think has like over 25,000 units under construction, Dallas is probably going to be okay. But what are some of those markets that you're a little bit um, more concerned about? Yeah, some of those near-term concern markets are going to be reflecting, I hate to focus too much on the Sun Belt because I know we have folks that operate outside of that, those smile states. But you look at that, I call them rising star Sun Belt markets. Mm -hmm. It's not DFW or Atlanta. It's Austin, Charlotte, Raleigh-Durham. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nashville, kind of that next rung of big, but not huge markets, you know, the the type of markets that have one or two professional sports teams as opposed to yeah. four professional sports teams. Uh, that's kind of that rung that we're talking about. But Raleigh-Durham, Charlotte, Nashville, Austin, those markets have um, anywhere, in some cases, I should say, anywhere from 12 to 15 percent of all existing inventory under construction. And at a market level, this is a discussion we have with clients a lot. It's really hard to overbuild a market in mass. You know, that takes mm -hmm. a long time to do, at least for a big market. You can overbuild small markets. But I think what will happen is that you're going to see some specific submarkets mm -hmm. go through some challenges. And here as of late, that's really showing up as true in a lot of urban cores. Downtown Austin has something like 25% of its existing inventory underway. Uh, it's actually just east of the highway, which isn't technically downtown Austin, but just in that natural corridor of growth is, uh, you know, 20, 30% inventory underway. Uh, Charlotte, there's neighborhoods that fit that same profile, 20, 30% inventory. But again, it's not just the Sunbelt. Uh, downtown Philly, uh, a market you don't typically think is having a lot of construction, has something yeah. like 16,000 units that are currently being built, which again, should be built or should have been built probably over the past decade or two so all this to say i think if you have some markets that maybe are maybe not raising the red flag but the yellow flag for now i would look at that rising star sunbelt profile uh one market i'll throw in that's maybe kind of an unknown just entering some untested waters is newark new jersey mm. and what you're really seeing is that because it is in many ways a satellite market of manhattan yeah. now uh you know you're really entering this paradigm of growth where three four thousand dollar a month apartments are delivering in newark which was never the case but they're actually capturing a lot of demand from manhattan yeah. as renters would be paying five thousand dollars a month to live in manhattan so i think with especially with a hybrid work model you're able to capture some of that demand so it'll be really interesting to see how some of these markets shape out over the next five to ten years yeah it will be and so and what i'm hearing from you carl is that correct me if i'm wrong but you're um you're cautious, but you're not overly concerned about um, the kind of the pipeline going forward. Um, it, but as is always with real estate, it's hyper local and it's really sub market specific. I mean, you could be, I mean, 
we're based out of Indianapolis, you know, the downtown uh, CBD has been struggling really since COVID. It's it's recovered, but it's it hasn't really come back. You know, barely positive rent growth. But in the suburbs, you know, it's you know it's 30 percent rent growth, and just you know going like gangbusters, and things are doing really well. But it it couldn't be a different um, two different stories. Um, so I'm curious. We've talked about the kind of the concern over um, oversupply, but the real crisis in housing is we don't have enough housing right. units. And looking at the pipeline, maybe not for next year, but it looks like there's we may have a drop off in deliveries, you know, after 2024 into in 2025. Um, are are you and the team looking at that kind of couple years out and how that will affect the market? And you know, are we still not going to be building enough to? Um, get to the you know the five to six million units that we need over you know twenty thirty or so. Are 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 we going to be? Are, are we still not going to build enough over the next decade? Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four, especially with some economic unknowns. Do we enter a yeah. recession? Do we not enter a recession? Some of those things are obviously going to influence the twenty twenty five and onwards pipeline. Um, and for folks that maybe aren't as familiar, the number you're quoting there is probably that NMHC number that said that we needed something like 330,000 additional apartment units yeah. per year delivered between now and I think it was 2030 or 2035, yeah. something like yeah, that. I think you're right, 2035. And, um, you know, the, the, the good news is even if we do see a slowdown post-2025, we'll probably, or at least in our view, we'll probably revert back to the 2010s norm, which was mm -hmm. about 320, 350, somewhere in there, thousand units delivering on an annual basis. But I do think that we'll certainly come down, certainly in the near term, from the current level of units delivering. We're, we're forecasting just a touch under 600,000 apartment units delivering in 2023. Now, that doesn't take into account delays either, and we all know that delays are becoming more commonplace. So I yeah. think in reality, what's going to happen is call it 20% of what's supposed to deliver this year pushes into 2024. If that's the case, then that means 2024 has about 600,000 units that are going to deliver. That may push deliveries into 2025. So you may see a yeah. little bit of a snowball effect, but yeah. the... The question is just, are developers able to maintain a pipeline that's in line with 300, 350,000 units in the event of a big economic pullback? We're not forecasting that. We think that if a recession were to materialize this year, um, which isn't in our base case, by the way, but if it were to happen, that means that obviously financing is going to be a little bit more difficult. Performance are going to be a little bit harder to hit. So yeah. that would cause a, a, a contraction in the pipeline. We're not forecasting that, but mm -hmm. it certainly is something that we're watching. Well, first, I think I think it's interesting that you're all not forecasting a recession because you know, you talked to some, especially folks a couple of weeks ago or before the end of the end of. 2022, a recession was almost certain and imminent. And while I think everyone acknowledged we're going through a time of economic, we're not really sure what to call it. It's not great, but it's not, you know, looking at unemployment, it's not horrible. Um, but, you know, whether we're going to use the R word or not has been a little bit of uh, a, hot, a hot button topic. But I guess, so in my mind, we've got all these developers that are out there. Um, many of them are pencils down right now, not pushing projects forward just because of the uncertain economic environment, mostly due to rate uncertainty. You know, we have, they have no idea what the, the interest rate exposure may be over that uh, construction period. There's also an uncertainty of, um, you know, price discovery and rent growth. You know, we aren't really 
we're still in the midst of figuring out what is the price for an asset in, in a given market. I mean, that that debate, that bid sell, that bid ask gap is still pretty wide right now. Um, however, I can see if things start to normalize and stabilize, become less volatile, you know, maybe those plans will get dusted off and those uh, those projects will go forward. But if we enter a time of an actual recession, have an economic downturn, they're not their most the chances of them going forward do not, I guess, increase. And then we could have a real supply shortage. Um, that could be unfortunate. Does that, that sound accurate or on the right yeah, track? Yeah, I think that's probably, a, I, think, I think that's a reasonable assumption. I think the, the, the real, I don't want to say unknown, but something that will be interesting to watch over the next year or two is, again, if we do have a recession, is it a lowercase r recession or a capital yeah. r recession? Yeah. I think that'll be the big um, you know, that, that'll be the big telltale sign. And I think for now, our expectation is that job growth essentially flattens out um, over the next year. Uh, we're already seeing the tech sector is having some pretty significant pullbacks. But for now, it appears just pretty much agnostic to the tech sector. Uh, doesn't yeah. mean that it couldn't grow beyond that. But, you know, those are some things that we're watching. But yeah, that, that bid ask spread has been interesting to hear come up more and more over the past yeah. 12 or so months. And I think it's going to be a big talking point for at least the next 12 months. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, one thing that may make that gap uh, not be as wide um, is a little bit more certainty on interest rates. Um, do you all have as your base case, you know, a couple, you know, additional 25 basis point increases, um, you know, from the Federal Reserve on the Fed funds rate, and then mostly staying flat for a longer period of time? Or, or how are you all um, looking at the next couple rounds of Fed meetings and um, interest rate increases? Yeah, so it's funny with the interest rate numbers, because our team doesn't directly forecast that. Yeah. But we, we have to have an inherent um, kind of qualitative, if you will, forecast on mm -hmm. on interest rates. And I think there's... As Which is the right approach, by the way. I think that's because no one, because we don't know. Yeah, ex yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny, you and I probably are in the boat where we have to explain that to a lot of people. But it's like you said, it's you, at the end of the day, you don't know. It's just a forecast. It's just a yeah. best guess. Um, I think with interest rates, as with any economist, there's really two arguments that can be made. One is that historically speaking, the Fed tends to overshoot um, in controlling inflation. And I think to some degree, we certainly did see that. I think the the pace at which interest rates rose through 2022 was playing catch up from what should have happened the preceding mm -hmm. three, four or five years. And we saw what that did to single family demand. I think in turn, that also affected multifamily demand through proxy of affecting customer sentiment. You mentioned earlier, uh, unemployment rate, go back to the Great Recession. I, I want to say unemployment was 10, 11% at its yeah. worst, which is significant, certainly not downplaying it. But ultimately, 10, 11% unemployment affects one in 10 households, you know, just going based on that number. Inflation affects one in one households. You know, mm -hmm. nobody spared the impact of inflation. And I think we can all agree that 8%, 9% inflation was probably a very conservative estimate at the end of the day. So I think the Fed was obviously trying to control that inflation rate. They may have overshot uh, in the near term playing catch up. So from that perspective, I think one could say maybe we are at the end of interest rate hikes, maybe another 25 basis points. But the, the most interesting uh, counterpoint I read to that a couple of days ago said that the worst thing the Fed can do right now is re 
recreate what happened in the 70s and 80s when inflation got out of control, interest rates rose. As inflation started to cool, interest rates came down, but then inflation reared its head with twice yeah. as much amount. And I think that's what the Fed has to be really careful with and why we may not see interest rates come down because the worst thing they can do is be wrong for a second time. And if interest rates come down and inflation really starts to spike a, a year from now, that would be just your absolute worst case scenario yeah. would probably cause stagflation, which is any economist's nightmare, or any economy, I should say, their nightmare. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I have a strong view on it either way. I just kind of wanted to present both of those arguments where I could see the end of hikes, but I could also see where there's room to capture another 100 basis points of hikes. Yeah. Maybe that's a little bit aggressive, but. Well, it's all kind of game theory to to an extent with the, with yeah. the Fed. I mean, you know, they they can move interest rates, and you know, they can quantitatively ease or tighten. Um, but so much of what it seems like they've been doing is really trying to affect the psychology of investors um, and consumers. Um, because to me, you know, and it, your work, you and, and Jay Parsons' work of talking about, you know, the consumer sentiment has really been the lead. Um, driver of this reduction, reduced absorption, and just the lower traffic of folks walking into the door of apartment communities to to lease. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, you know, the you know Jerome Powell has this ability to affect someone's decision whether they're going to go lease an apartment by you know not you know tw you know adjusting interest rates, but you know, the, just to talk about keeping interest rates higher and that putting the entire economy on edge and just the the psychology so it's we're really you know managing everyone's psychology and if there is a lot of a pent, of pent up demand giving everyone the green light with uh you know no more interest rate increases could potentially lead to higher rates of inflation and then when the feds lost credibility um and you know we could be in a really bad spot and in everyone, you said one to one. Everyone's going to be continu continually affected uh, by the harms of inflation, and that's not a good recipe for anybody. Um, so, yep, totally agree. Yeah, it turns out that ten dollar eggs and uh, you know record in car <laughs> payments, all that, that has a real impact on how people decide whether they're going to go buy a house or rent a new apartment. You know, yeah. people tend to just do nothing, which means they renew their lease, or in this case, they don't move from their house. They just kind of tend to stay the course until things start yeah. to cool off. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense. It's like, let's just stay put. And especially when you look at uh, maybe a new apartment and the new market rent being significantly more than your renewal, then it's like, let's just let's just stay put. Even though they think the renewal may be quite a bit, is relatively expensive everywhere, um, prices have gone up. So, uh, you know, on that note, um, these inflationary pressures, it seems to have affected um, you know, lower income, you know, renters and, you know, individuals who are just feeling the the inflationary pressures, you know, much more than those maybe living in, you know, A-class luxury apartments. So we haven't seen, um, you know, rent growth and really, you know, rent growth in C-class properties has been, you know, negative relative to inflation. You know, I don't, they have not outpaced inflation. Um, A-class properties and upper end of class B has been really doing pretty well. That's where there's a lot of growth has been coming. With all the new supply of A-class properties coming online the next, uh, you know, in 2023 and beyond, um, do you see a, I guess, a, an inversion in some of the wages get caught up on the class C renters? Or how, I guess, do you have a uh, kind of an idea, crystal ball, for, um, I guess, the just different break income demographics um, at multifamily properties? 
Yeah, I think that's a fair a fair point to bring up, and I think this goes back to that point earlier of where you're going to start to see some bifurcation by, in this case, asset class where uh, you know certain class A properties that are stabilized are going to be competing with three lease ups within walking distance. Yeah. So you're going to see, in some cases, some deeper concessions. You know, I'll, I'll actually I just happen to have this number at the top of my head, so I'll share it. Um, downtown Los Angeles something like 10, 15% of available apartments today are offering a concession, which isn't huge, but when they are offering a concession, they're averaging three months free. So that's a significant wow. discount. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, when you start seeing that, that starts to, you know, if there's consumer sentiment, there's also operator sentiment and that can start to affect the psyche of nearby operators. So yeah. I think what you'll see is some class A properties that are stabilized today or some class A markets, if you will, will probably withstand pressure a little bit more than some others. I think you'll see a split within class A. Class B is really interesting because you know you, you zoom out 30,000 foot view and look at apartments holistically, most of the nation's apartment stock could be considered class B. You know, just talking nice round numbers, we like to consider the middle 60-ish percent of market rate properties based on their average rent. The middle 60-ish would class classify as class B assets. The remaining on the two tail ends, if you think of a bell curve, it wouldn't be the very ends, but just think yeah. of the bell curve and the two closer to the two tails, that would be your A and your C. So I think class B is really in a good spot. I think you're going to see a lot of stability. Uh, you know, I think class B also is insulated from some of the inflationary pressures more so mm -hmm. than class C, which I'll talk about here in a second. But conversely, or in addition to that, rather, class B is, you know, a, a 25-30% rent premium versus class A, meaning that your class A rents are running, uh, you know, 25%, 30% higher than your average class B. So from that perspective, a class A isn't going to be able to offer a deep enough discount to pull somebody from the mm -hmm. B pool into that A pool of renters. Now, the class B pool can take somebody from the A renter subset who's looking to save money, move out of the you know expensive area, whatever the case may be. All right, so last point, class C. That's where things yeah. get really interesting. Class C is, uh, you know, as you point out, the inflation uh, headwinds have affected that subset of properties far more significantly. Uh, we see collection rates in terms of percent rent build versus what was collected. That's closer to 90, 92-ish percent in that subset of housing. Convert if you look at the national, the nation overall, it's closer to 95 and a half, 96 percent. That's a pretty big spread there yeah. when you start taking talking about the total existing stock of units. So class C is going to be really challenged in the near term. Are they able to offset some of the inflationary pressure? You know, you mentioned it earlier that real rent growth is probably coming in below that of um, of uh, uh, of inflation. And a lot of that, too, just says that Class C, historically speaking, rent growth tend to match the pace of wage growth as well. There wasn't a lot of discretionary income there. I think that component of the nation's housing market is where we really need to find some ways to support additional housing to service that subset of population to allow for more uh, allow for more supply to enter in that, that B to C pool through whether it's subsidies, whether it's programs, whatever the case may be, to offer more housing for that subset of properties or that subset of renters. 
Uh, and that's where it gets really challenging because that's where policy meets real world uh, economic application. So I've probably gone on this point a little bit too long, but I think the, the takeaway would be that class B is probably in a resilient spot for the next two to three years. Class A, you're going to have some that do some areas that do well, some areas that maybe have some challenges due to construction headwinds. Class C, that's where we need to focus a lot more of our policy efforts and a lot more of our uh, uh, a, a lot more of our efforts to, you know, help off, help offset some of the external economic pressures that is happening in that subset of housing. Yeah, you know, that that leads to a good point, and and we didn't really talk much about this before the show, but you know, I'm just curious. You know, politics um, can be seen as you know, kind of the savior to the housing industry because you know we have this huge need for affordable housing that just the private mar private sector is just not providing. Um, at the same time. Uh, you know, the government intervention can really, uh, you know, mess up uh, private investment in the creation uh, of of, how, of new housing stock, which we desperately need. Curious um, if you have any, um, I guess, you know, worry cards or any predictions or things that you all at RealPage are tracking on the kind of the political front. Obviously, there's been some talk recently at the national level, and then there's all things moving around on the local level where so many of the you know zoning laws and where it actually rubber meets the road matter curious your take and how politics may affect the multifamily landscape going forward. Yeah, it has a, it has a very real influence. And I, I personally don't live as much in the political analysis meets yeah. economic analysis. You know, it's, it's something that I'd love to spend more time on. I just happen to most of my work focuses yep. on the, the economic angle. Um, you know, you bring up a good point though. And I think kind of the crux of what makes it so, so challenging is that there are national mandates, I guess, for lack of a better word, there's national policy, but it's really that hyper local policy where it starts to to get, you know, really fragmented and really difficult to wrap your arms around. Uh, you know, I'm going to call out Southern California, for instance, a lot of our analysis looks at market level, and I'll point out Orange County. Orange County, I think we have 12 different submarkets. Each one of those submarkets has multiple cities, and each one of those cities has a different rent control measure, different zoning yeah. laws, and that's where it gets so difficult to get your arms around. So, uh, you know, if I, I guess if I had to give a concise answer there, it would be that policy has a very real impact on the real estate outlook, but it's just so hyper local that it's hard to summarize. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. The, I mean, the local zoning rules, rent control um, policies, regulations, I mean, it can, it can be vastly different. I mean, city by city, I mean, just in the same state, the same County. I mean, I know some markets in Indiana, you know, Bloomington, I think as an example, uh, it's got Indiana university. So the Bloomington itself is a very, I'd say, you know, left leaning uh, government because there's, it's a, it's, you know, college campus and that's what everybody likes. And it's a, it's a great town, but then you cross the line, it's completely different rules and where we've got a property there, you know, we can't, if a tree falls down, we can't move. If the tree falls down in the middle of the driveway, we cannot move the tree. The city has to come by and make sure that the tree was fell the right way. And it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty insane, but that's in Indiana, which is, you know, a very, you know, deep red state. Um, so it, it, it's, it's fascinating. Um, Carl, I'd like to go dig into a little bit more on real page and kind of the data and the pieces that you're putting out. So I'm, I'm curious, you guys track a lot of, you know, different metrics and KPIs, you know, I think, you know, rent growth is probably the, the most talked about, the most reported, um, which, you know, a lot of it's, you know, market rent growth, which doesn't necessarily tell the full um, picture. Um, I guess 
first, what do you, what are the some of the metrics that you like to follow? You know, is it rank growth or what, what are some of those KPIs that you see a study come out or you're the, the, those are the first ones that you're looking at seeing where they moved? Yeah. And so rent growth is an interesting one because a lot of people use that as kind of the gold standard. And I think in many ways it is, you know, you go back a few steps and look at economics 101, rent growth is going to capture what's happening with occupancy and really demand in the moment. But in some way, I shouldn't say in the moment, because in some ways rent growth is a lagging indicator as rents adjust to what's happening to the market. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear a lot about this idea, can demand be stimulated by offering concessions? I don't know that that's necessarily a sound approach to the, to the, to the numbers because you're not necessarily stimulating demand. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're really just kind of offering discounts in the moment. So while rent growth is powerful, I think there's other indicators you can look at that are maybe more real time, more telling. Uh, I think occupancy is kind of that, um, that number that a lot of people like to focus on uh, that, you know, is a, a, a time tested method or a time tested metric. But uh, I like looking at things like lead volumes, you know, what's happening with today's front door traffic, yeah. uh, renewal conversions, how many residents are renewing their lease, is that changing over time? I think those are two really powerful metrics that kind of tell you where demand is going to head 30, 60, 90 days out. You know, that's about as about as real time as you're going to get, at least in the, the data set that we work with. Yeah, looking at some of those more leading indicators rather than than lagging. And then, you know, I, I noticed, uh, I think Jay Parsons put out um, a post on LinkedIn today about some kind of early numbers on some of that foot traffic and seeming that you know, the foot traffic and leasing activity may be picking up, you know, early this year. I don't think we've got enough data to really make any good conclusions, but um, yeah, trying to look at what's going to happen in the future rather than, you know, what happened this last quarter is really important. So there, there's a lot of different, you know, um, publishers of this type of information and something that, you know, Matt and I find is interesting when we're looking at this stuff every week is there can be some pretty big discrepancies between, you know, different sources. The biggest example, obviously, is like when you look at, you know, uh, rents as a part of CPI and the way CPI tracks rents, you know, it's it's com it's completely different. You know, it's it's been positive, you know, month over month when we're seeing every other private uh, metric go uh, go down or, or go go negative. Um, what should people keep in mind um, when they're looking at different sources um, to make sure that they're comparing apples to apples rather than apples and oranges? Yeah, apples to apples is kind of that trick where you want to make sure that you're comparing, you know, we, we you probably heard the term or, you know, people on the call probably will hear the term same store before, but yeah. that's an important thing that we like to note because, you know, same storing can really make a difference on some of the numbers depending on what you're looking at. And actually for what it's worth, I think it's good to calibrate based on two or three different inputs. You know, you may mm -hmm. have one that you tend to skew towards or lean towards, but, uh, you know, that's some advice that was given to me a long time ago is, uh, you know, don't always take one thing as gospel. You can really lean towards something, but try to hear both sides of the equation. Really try to listen to more yeah. than one voice and one input. And I think that's important. So I think it's good that there's uh, competition out there. And it also makes companies better at what they do by nature of that competition. It, you know, it doesn't, it allows, um, or at least staves off complacency. But anyway, I'll get off my soapbox there. Um, yeah, no, no, no that, that's great. Though we, we've seen that as, you know, uh, we like seeing different sources and comparing the two and, and what that methodology is. And sometimes things make sense. And sometimes, you know, frankly, there are can be some other groups, not not the real page team, but like, you guys just getting lazy over there putting this out. 
not think anyone's going to be reading the whole thing or 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 what. Now, the last question, and this is a little inside baseball, because again, it's something that, that Matt and I talk about. Um, but we always talk about, you know, you know, where you're getting your sources from and, you know, what the motivations might be. And, you know, so I want make take this the right way because we love the work that you all do. But sometimes we say, okay, from, and we look at a source from, you know, a, uh, you know, not necessarily a real page, but, you know, when we look at a source from a company that's also in the business, especially the brokerage firms, um, where I'm like, okay, you're also, you know, real page in the process of, you know, selling software and selling analytics and, and different types of software tools. You know, some of the brokerages, you know, they're in the business of, you know, advising their clients on real estate, but they're, they're selling real estate. Um, and do you feel like there's ever any conflicts uh, from the sources trying to be empirical, putting out good data? Obviously, if you're putting out trash, no one's going to listen to you. But do you ever think there's any pressures from some of you know these maybe other sources or anywhere in the market where maybe you're putting a little bit too rosy of lenses on just to not get your buyers to put their pencils down? Yeah, I'm sure that it's out there. I'm sure that it happens. Um, something that is, I think, unique to the space that we play in is that we have clients that really service all forms of multifamily housing. So. Uh, you know, we don't tend to skew toward two towards he- we don't tend to skew too heavily towards um, one perspective or one persona, yeah. if you will, than the other. You know, because to your point, the brokers may have a very different view than the developers who have a very different view than the capital shops who are providing all the capital today. Yeah. So um, one thing I will say that we do and something that I'm really grateful for is that because we service so many different personas, we're able to calibrate some of our worldview to say, oh, a group comes and talk to us, present some data. And, you know, it's like, hey, maybe, yeah, you know, you have boots on the ground in that market. We, you know, really can learn a lot from the stuff that you're seeing. As much as I love to think that we know everything about the nation, you know, it's 50 major markets that we track, 100 uh, smaller markets, and even more than that. And there's just no way that you're going to ever know everything about a market. And if somebody comes to you and says, hey, we're active in Bloomington, Indiana, then of course, we're going to yield to what you're seeing in that market. And that feedback really helps us calibrate. So I don't know that we have too much of a challenge with that. I think we're probably... Um, you know, in some ways blessed that we have so many of these relationships that way we're really able to calibrate and kind of fix or, uh, you know, um, um, gauge different market perspectives rather than just relying too heavily on that one source of input. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But, you know, certainly whether it's where uh, everybody's living or working, it certainly can start to influence on, you know, possibly coverage. And we, we, we complain sometimes um, just, again, just from our own our bias that we're, we're always like, you know, where where's the coverage for the Midwest? Because, you know, it's so focused on, you know, the Sun Belt or the Gateway Markets. I mean, that's where the concentration of capital, that's where a lot of exciting stories and narratives are. Occasionally, I feel like the Midwest gets glossed over a little bit. Um, but sometimes we like that because we're like, all right, that's fine. You know, if Indianapolis is, you know, number one rent growth uh, market in the nation, if you're not paying attention, you know, that that that's okay. We'll 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 take it. But um, we're always just interested in kind of taking that next layer back and just seeing, you know, okay, we're um, you know, maybe what are, what are some of the motivations and just trying to understand we're getting the full story behind some of this information. Um, but you guys do a great job and and we really appreciate it. 
Um, all right, just before we go, um, I wanted just to highlight kind of just two last pieces, Carl, that you put out recently on RealPage. And, and again, I, I highly recommend for anyone that um, is a multifamily investor, you're in the industry, you're, you're just curious, um, follow Carl on LinkedIn because he's putting out some really good stuff. Um, but also he's writing some really interesting um, pieces. And I know you mentioned one that's going to be coming up that you're going to be releasing in the next month or two um, that we're really excited to see. I'm also excited uh, to see you're going to be at NMHC coming up uh, next week. Mm -hmm. Is that right? You're going to be speaking at the, I think the strategies and outlook conference. I saw you in the agenda. That's, that's really exciting. Um, but so there's three types of markets that could struggle in 2023. Um, and we talked about some of these, um, factors um, a little bit earlier. Um, this came out just a couple of weeks ago. Carl, can you quickly kind of just give us a kind of high level overview on what three markets that we might want to look out for? Yeah, absolutely. So that first one that you see there, big inventory growth markets, that goes back to our talking point earlier where you're going to have some markets that they got a lot of supply to work through. You know, I've used the analogy before of uh, and, and, you know, a, a snake eating an egg, it's eating all that, all that egg at one time, you know, it, it's not able to piecemeal it out. So I think you're going to have some markets that adjust here in the near term to that amount of supply pressure. Um, the second market profile that we've flagged there is um, markets where loss to lease has really started to deteriorate quickly. And uh, for those that maybe aren't as uh, active on the operational side of the equation. Loss to lease is essentially the difference between a new lease rent or a new residence rent versus what in-place residents are paying. And actually, you uh, uh, you alluded to it earlier there, Spencer, when you said that a resident goes and shops for a new apartment, they see what that new sticker price is, and they're like, hey, this renewal actually is a lot more palatable from that perspective. So markets that are getting close to where renewals are actually more than new leases, you are running the running the risk of a gain to lease scenario, which means that your rent roll becomes inverted. And it's pretty rare. We don't see this happening very often, but uh, there are a few markets that are running a little bit closer to that risk happening. Uh, I think we pointed out a few there, but it's yeah. in places like Cincinnati, Houston, Jacksonville, more of the exception than the norm. Uh, but those are some markets to watch for. And then the third one, I think, is going to be really, really fascinating to see how it plays mm -hmm. out over yeah. the next few years. Lifestyle markets, that's a term I had never heard before the past three years. And what a lifestyle market is, is essentially an area that happens to be located nearby some sort of natural amenity, you know, a beachfront market, a mountain town, some of those things. It's not your Dallas's or your Houston's of the world, but a lifestyle market. I think the, um, the, the 2020 period saw a lot of demand flood into those lifestyle markets because of the work from home ability, uh, you know, places like, and I'm not saying this is one that we're concerned about, but just for the sake of example, Charleston, South Carolina, it's an attractive location, probably pulled a lot of that East Coast demand in from New York, Massachusetts, et cetera. Uh, some of that demand was probably always going to happen at some point in the future. We really just saw that it accelerated and crunched into that 2020, 2021 period. The question going forward, if we hit some more economic hiccups, how much of that demand stays in that market versus how much of it floods back to its original home market? Uh, you know, it's obviously not going to be all one way or the other, but there is going to be a, a spectrum there. 
um, where that demand falls, is it going to stay local yeah. or is it not going to stay local? And I think the local markets that have some sort of existing demand anchor, whether it be a college or a big employer or some sort of up and coming tech hub, you know, something along those lines, those are going to be the markets with some staying power. The yeah. markets that are really going to be challenged are those that aren't much more than just kind of a retirement market that are also cool getting plan. hammered with new supply. Yeah. Cool place to live that I, I guess one that comes to mind would be like an Asheville, North Carolina, maybe, yeah. um, which is like, I, I love, I love Asheville. Um, but you know, the amount of apartments that are being built there and the amount of people who've moved there and how much of that is, you know, in the, yeah, the, the kind of the COVID, you know, pandemic period of where we were working from home, you kind of work from anywhere and like, let's just move somewhere cool. And, um, but what's that staying power? What are the industries that are going to sustain other than we've got some awesome mountains and, you know, good hiking, fun things to do and a lot of good beer. So. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Great, great, great place. I love, love, love Asheville. But, you know, to your point, if that's your investment thesis is, hey, it's got a lot of cool craft breweries, then is that really kind of the staying power that you want versus yeah. a Greenville Spartanburg in South Carolina that has, you know, big manufacturing facilities, yeah. it's got an established downtown, maybe that's where you would want your capital flowing more so than Asheville. And again, uh, my, my, my personal favorite would be Asheville, because <laughs> yeah. I love that market. But well, we can see why example. people are why we can see why people you know move there and would want to live i mean i have friends that live in nashville too, and there's a lot of great markets like that but yeah, yeah when you're building your investment thesis you know what's what's what are the legs that it's standing on and uh if there's not some real jobs behind it you kind of have to scratch your head a little bit um carl we're, we're we we're kind of running out of time we've taken too much of your time but this has been like such a uh, a privilege and a pleasure to have you on. I, I hope that you'll be able to find some time. We'd like to do this again sometime in the future, catch back up, kind of see where things are um, because your insights are invaluable. And, and again, we're watching what you guys are doing and we think it's great. So really appreciate it from Matt, myself, all the great report listeners and everybody with great capital. Yeah, really, again, thank thank you for what you guys do. Yeah, thank you all. Appreciate it. And we'll uh, we'll connect soon. Absolutely. Sounds great.